Welcome to Reach, your platform to connect with other executive assistants and acquire game-changing knowledge and perspective. Reach is designed to inspire your workday, guide you through pivotal moments in your career, and transform you into the executive assistant you've always wanted to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reach. This is your host, Jessica Van. I'm the founder and CEO of Maven Recruiting Group, and I am joined today by Candace Deans. Hi, Candace. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to start this conversation. Me too. I remember that even before we talked to you about being a guest, you had mentioned that you were a listener first. So this is very full circle. Yeah, I, I feel um, very serendipitous right now. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Well, Candice is currently the senior executive business partner to the CEO of Samsara. And we'll be getting into a little bit more of her role a little bit later in our conversation. But the, the main thing that Candace is here to discuss with us today um, is with regard to our, our, our subject matter of the moment, which is viewpoints on DE&I in the workplace. Um, so as a, as a little bit of a prelude, we know that today's workspaces function very differently than they did even, you know, let's say a year ago. We have post-COVID era accommodations that have fundamentally shifted how we work and how we organize as employees and as a culture. So a different kind of effort really needs to be made to maintain human connections that we typically would form when we work alongside of each other. And I think an important aspect of these connections that contribute to company culture is benefiting from an inclusive and diverse workspace. So today, as I mentioned, we're going to be speaking with Candice. And in addition to her current role supporting Samsara's CEO, she's had an illustrious career prior, performing in roles that have uniquely qualified her to navigate this topic of how the working world is shifting. And she's been, prior to her current role, the executive business partner to the chief people and diversity officer at Twitter, and ultimately shifted to the human resources business partner role post their acquisition. So Candace has had really exclusive access and contribution to how DEI is approached and implemented in a large technology dynamic organization. So you are officially a subject matter expert. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Great. So welcome, welcome. Um, let's start by getting a little bit of background on you and a little, a little biography. So I have to mention that you graduated from Fordham, which is obviously a very, uh, very competitive and prestigious institution. And you earned both a bachelor's and a master's degree there, something that is very impressive. Um, I'd love to understand how that translated or how that's translated your academic learning, um, and particularly an advanced degree, how that's translated into your work as an assistant and into just your workflows. 
Oh, thank you so much for asking. And I just uh, wanted to stop and say thank you so much for having me here. I'm super excited about Maven and kind of how you all um, build connections in the administrative and HR community. So really excited to dive into our discussion today. Um, so as you mentioned, yes, I did get my master's and undergraduate degree at Fordham University. And basically, it's interesting because I took both of those degrees in, in t totally two different realms. So my undergraduate degree was in fashion merchandising. Um, and my graduate degree was in um, communications and media studies. And so and during that time, while I was in school, getting my graduate degree, I was a resident director. So it runs the gamut. And so I think that degree in both cases, especially in both my undergraduate and graduate degree, um, undergraduate, as you know, in fashion merchandising, you're paying very close attention to either details and even how people visually walk into a space. Um, and I've been able to translate that especially as an executive assistant and moving into how I plan events and not just with the agenda criteria, but also with locations. How do you want your executives and the teams to feel when they walk in? What is the goal um, of that particular offsite? And so that kind of that undergraduate um, degree helped train my eye a little bit more um, on like what makes a space beautiful, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of like my communications degree, as you know, you have to talk to and speak with a bunch of different people and different types of personalities. Um, and so in that instance, honing in the different communication styles, whether it be more informal or formal, how to communicate clearly and effectively, especially when you want to get something done in a collaborative setting. All of that um, encompassed kind of what I learned in communications and media studies, also in well as taking that into like the tech world, um, me working for uh, social media companies like Facebook and Twitter. And um, as I was, you know, getting my degree um, in my graduate degree and working as a resident director, I think it was, I mean, as you know, it's heavily um, administrative and interpersonal, again, um, connections that you'll need to make with either your undergraduate residents or different tasks that you need to complete on your own, different time management that was um, needed um, so that you could, you know, make strides throughout your day, also studying and also doing your work. So, I mean, I think my whole time at Fordham really set me up um, really well for my trajectory that I'm doing right now. And was it your intention that you would that you would end up in EA work or did it sort of happen? You used the word serendipitous earlier. I like that. I love that word, actually. Do, do you feel like it was serendipity that you ended up in this profession or was it an intentional trajectory on your part? it materialized serendipitously. I love, I love using that word as well. Um, so basically I, let me rephrase a little bit. I had worked with, um, as you know, many different people in my undergraduate degree and kind of took a stop um, during about two years trying to figure out leaving um, New York and just trying to figure out where was my next step. Um, and so my sister-in-law, who currently lives in the Bay Area, had started her own company. And in that time, she had obviously seen all of the different things that I had done. And 
offered me a position. Um, but what it was requiring was that I would move out to California and help her build up her startup. Um, at the time, they only had about 10 people. And what they needed was someone to be basically, as you, as people have heard, kind of the Jill or Jack of all trades inside of the office who could handle HR, who could handle scheduling, who could handle office um, kind of management in terms of ordering supplies and things like that. Um, and I jumped at the chance because I had done a lot of different things. I understand how to manage my time. And so with that um, trust that she put in me is where I ended up making my decision to move over to the Bay Area. Um, and that kind of like opened the floodgates, as you can say. Yeah. Yeah. Quite literally. Yeah. yeah. So you started, so as you mentioned, I mean, there were, there were a couple of roles that preceded, but I think if we, if we look at your decision to go to Facebook, um, which was, as you mentioned, not your first EA position, but you were there nevertheless a little bit far or a little bit further along in your career. So you started your career at Facebook just about two years after all of the, the really Titan organizations that we think of when we think of Silicon Valley, um, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, after these players released their first ever diversity reports. I'm curious to what extent well, like, well, I guess, A of all, was that even on your radar when you were evaluating Facebook as a place to, to work? And if it was, to what extent did the content and results of those reports impact your decision about where you wanted to work? Yeah, I would say that it wasn't technically in terms of Facebook in general and the diversity reports. They weren't completely on my radar. But what I will say is that I really had, I come from spaces that weren't very diverse and wanted to make sure that the next spot that I landed um, cultivated that in some way. And so when I first interviewed for Facebook, I actually met with um, a woman who was a woman of color and she was supporting the chief um, product officer at the time. And even to this day, I see her as my mentor. And in seeing her, I saw myself um, at a place like Facebook, which to me gained a lot of insight into what I was hoping that the, the company trajectory was when it came to having diverse faces in, in different roles within the tech industry. And so that is one of the reasons, too, why I did make the decision to go to Facebook, um, really based off of that interaction and being able to see myself um, at a place like that. Got it. So it was more <clears throat> her person, what she represented and in your interaction with her as an individual, as opposed to kind of their macro report. Correct. Um, I will say at the time, looking at the reports, they were pretty abysmal, <laughs> um, mainly because of how large, you know, Facebook and the um, Googles are. I think they hovered at around 2% at the time of when I joined. Um, and so it feel it felt when you saw the numbers it did feel kind of small but i will say that in my everyday interactions i had um a lot of different diverse faces that I got to see across the board. And so that did give me hope, you know, of that, you know, things have to eventually evolve and change. And it did make me feel that the company was trying to keep a pulse on um, hiring and interaction in that arena. Um, so, you know, though the numbers didn't look 
very large. Um, I think in the in the day to day, it was nice to see um, multiple different types of faces um, and experiences when I worked at Twitter or at Facebook. So sorry. Yeah. Well, now that's kind of where where my next question was was headed, which is, you know, did your experience as an employee line up with their, you know, these professed diversity goals? And it, I mean, it does sound like what you're saying is that you did have these diverse interactions. So there was some, you know, um, evidence of of that being not only a, a goal, but actually an, an, an actual thing and an achievement. But I'm, I'm curious if you felt like there was synchronicity, um, you know, at Facebook, at Twitter, you know, in, in alignment in terms of the professed intention and what actually was the case. Yeah, I will say, I think basically ERGs play a huge role in this, um, and that's in employee group resources. That is usually where I got my my boost of really understanding the experiences across the board and also felt like the company was putting their dollars too behind what they're saying in reports and out externally. Um, both uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook or uh, Meta have, uh, have very um, deep ERG connections that had help cultivate, you know, what you would want to see at a company at that time when I was working there, Um, meaning that they put money behind any person who helped chair those ERG groups, um, meaning they would get an additional stipend, which was which is really great because you're spending your additional time outside of your job to help build community connection, which also then translates over into the recruiting world. Um, also, in terms of, you know, really supporting times where you were looking at candidates to make sure that you position yourself in different, um, whether they be job fairs or um, recruiting events that were really geared toward um, a predominantly uh, person of people of color um, population was very helpful, I think, and also showed that they were making a conscious effort to make sure that they were out there grabbing um, different types of candidates, as well as um, helping to bring those candidate or the those employees um, along as you know in terms of the, the career journey that they they wanted to have um, so that was great I will say in terms of both of those um, instances I found it difficult a bit um, in terms of seeing who was getting promoted and also making sure that it didn't just happen on the IC level but it also translated into senior directors and VPs and things like that. Um, and so that was that was always, um, I feel like that is, uh, even right now, is difficult for a lot of tech companies to kind of hone in and make sure that they're up-leveling or also recruiting um, those candidates that are um, diverse in talent in those, in those levels. Mm-hmm. And when you when you talk about the ERG groups, can you maybe share some examples with our listeners of what some of those groups were and and what their kind of manifests were? Yeah. So um, 
it runs the gamut, um, but most of the time I've seen um, employee research groups um, geared towards pride. So those individuals um, for the LGBTQ plus community, also um, those who identify as Black um, Americans have a um, ERG as well as women in tech, which is huge. As you know, um, that really has been made headways in um, the diversity and inclusion space, especially from when they started doing those reports until now. There's a lot more women and a lot more women leadership within technology. Um, Also, you know, employee research groups that have to do with those who have um, different abilities. Um, and we used to call it at Twitter, Twitter able, um, parent resource groups. So it really ran the gamut of what do you have that personally that you, helps you identify and you bring that to work. We want to make sure that when you come into the office, you feel included and that there's no exclusionary um, anything happening um, at the office based off of race, religion, creed, et cetera. That gives a good kind of representation of some of the groups, some of the exposures that they're actively trying to cultivate and just, you know, generate awareness for. So. Okay. So digging into your time at Twitter, you started by supporting the chief design officer. And as you've already mentioned, you studied fashion merchandising at Fordham. So is it somewhat um, apropos that, that that happened and that that sort of came together in that way? And if so, how were you able to integrate your sense of design into your understanding of operations and and of what your executive did in that role. Yeah, I I believe so. I so I started supporting um teams that were specifically design related um, at Facebook. And so there, I think I got, they spoke the same language as me. Really, designers are very um, into the details. They do like simplicity. And especially when you're working in technology, you want things to be Uh, my VP would say simple, lovable, and complete. So you know exactly what button to click, you love going on there, and you have a complete experience once you've finished. Um, And so anything that put too many clicks in the way or like, you know, made it too hard for you to get to your end goal was not something um, that you went into or that you wanted to continue to iterate on. And in that, I just really got the chance to hone in and also bring to light my love for detail and design, whether it was um, understanding where we are in the product design process um, and understanding his language of what makes a good you know, product, especially when it comes to technology, also into the the space of how do I help create spaces for designers to feel that they are in an experience that's curated for them. Um, so I paid a lot of, cl- I paid close attention. I asked them questions about what types of setups do, did they like, what types of, you know, rooms or colors that made them feel like they were able to collaborate. And in that, I was able to bring that and translate that into each of the 
um, events and things that I um, cultivated for both of my teams and for my executive when I started working with him. Hmm. I love that. I think that that's a really very powerful, but also really relatable example. Um, I mean, just like what, like you talk about what colors make you feel powerful, what color feels, what colors make you feel engaged or calm or whatever the case may be. I mean, there, there is a lot of leeway as assistants that we can take in terms of um, amplifying the experience of people and color. And as you mentioned, design in general are all like two very significant ways of doing that. Yeah. And I, I would, I would also in, in regards to just also knowing your audience, I think the interesting thing that executive assistants have is that you are the first face. You get to know your executive's team and what they need and understanding those details makes it even that much better in terms of creating an event that feels really inclusive, that feels like someone's been seen. Can you imagine, I had an, there's an example of when um, we were putting together an offsite um, for first one in a while and everyone was, um, since the pandemic and everyone was going to be in person and we had just hired this VP who was wheelchair bound. Um, And as we curated the event, we made sure that each piece was um, ab- able for him to feel like he can navigate the this, this space on his own. We wanted to make sure we had enough space between things. We wanted to make sure that we had ramps there for him. And literally at the end of the event, he thanked me because he was like, I knew that you were going to make sure that I can get to each location and feel like I was a part of the group and there was nothing left to where, you know, I couldn't be a part of. Um, And so like, that's the kind of thing, especially when you're also working and you're doing these events or just creating spaces that can be very inclusive is to keep those things in mind. Um, How do, how do we make something feel um, unique and special to every individual who's going to be participating. Right. And, um, and inclusive. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's a really good point. And I, I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit later in our conversation about how you as an EA can impact uh, diversity goals and inclusion goals. And I, I think that w- what your example illustrates as a really powerful reminder is that it, it doesn't necessarily need to be at a policy level. It might be at a policy level, and, and that's something that we can get into later on. But at a minimum, it can be at an experience level. And I think that's a really great example that you just shared of how of how those those, you know, your role and those values can align. So when you decided to move on to support the chief people and diversity officer at Twitter, what was the driving force behind your decision to move from the chief design officer to the chief people and diversity officer? Well, one one um, major um, driver was that he had made the decision to leave Twitter, <laughs> um, and so I'll do it. I mean that'll that'll change yeah. it. Um, and so, because he made that decision, I wasn't quite sure, and he wasn't quite sure of his next location, um, and so I hadn't completely decided that I I no longer wanted to um, work at Twitter. I just knew that 
it had to be the right fit. And that's always been a big reason of why I choose or, yeah, why I choose which execs I end up working with. Um, And so at the time, the chief people and diversity officer, um, she was also looking, had some changes and also was super new. She wasn't new to the company, but she was new to the role. And so this was going to be her first C-suite role and really was looking for the type of support that that I provide, which is more along the lines of kind of getting a little bit more into the weeds of not just scheduling, but also understanding what is the company objectives and goals and trying to figure out how to best position my executive in both internally and externally to kind of achieve those. And um, she's also a woman of color. And so I hadn't been able to work with um, a woman of color. And I, I had in my working with the chief uh, design officer, but I wanted to continue that trajectory. Um, I find that because you don't have very many leaders who are sitting in the C-suite, um, being a woman and a woman of color, I thought that that was a very powerful place for her to be in. And I thought I could definitely learn a lot from her. Um, and so that it was ultimately why um, we became a really great fit together. Yeah, that's great. So when you made the switch to support the, the chief diversity officer at Twitter, did you find there to be any intra-company culture differences on her desk versus on the um chief design officer's desk. Yeah. I mean, I think the the differences is more along the lines of people policy, right? I think in terms of the chief design officer, we're really looking at the product. Um, you can th- think of us, that team more as like the R&D team and working really closely with just the actual pixels and the handheld product that, um, that you're delivering. And in her, at her desk, it was really all about the individual workers. How do we create um, and give clarity to policies that are going to either up-level our teams, um, give clarity around uh, different policies that we have um, in terms of, you know, uh, the global parenting policy, things like that, um, uh, even equity um, in regards to compensation, how do we make that transparent? So it was very um, people related. And so to me, it was uh, really different and also really exciting um, because as a person who's been working with people my my whole career um, and understanding those type of policies and being able to explain it to employees, um, I felt it was was super powerful and really interesting. Um, So yeah, that was, it was definitely different. And did you feel in that role that there was an opportunity to lend your voice or your perspective or your input to some of these people, policies and practices or not so much? Oh, yeah. No, definitely could lend my voice. I think my the chief people and diversity officer really wanted to hear what an IC's experience was, especially to as an executive assistant. What I've found is that this is one of those roles that sometimes it's not necessarily that it's overlooked, but they can be um, 
configured in, in different ways. You can report directly into your CEO or whoever your person is that you're supporting into your executive, or you could be reporting into somewhat of a peer, but a, an EA manager. Um, and in each instance, you have differences of what your career journey is going to look like. How is your career progression going to look like? Um, and so I was able to kind of lend a voice to that that IC mentality of like, okay, if you're going to launch this new um, quarterly check-in, what does that look like for an IC? What's the lift? How are those conversations going to go? In my experience, it's been why. And I think um, that was helpful for the team um, because as, you know, in as the chief people and diversity officer, her role ran the gamut from recruiting all the way to, um, you know, performance slash um, career management and um, as well as compensation. And so being able to have be in the room with those who help set the standards for those things that are basically foundations of every company <laughs> was pretty cool. Um, and I was able to really lend my voice and in my experience, um, especially too, because I had been with the company for a while before I transitioned. And so I could give the perspective of, you know, you we've released this last year and this is what I heard from my team. This is what I heard from the managers on the design team of how it worked for them. Maybe we should think about seeing if we can change timelines, you know, certain things like that. Yeah, that's great. So oftentimes we find that it's necessary to educate or carry out extra somewhat, you know, I'm putting in quotation marks, air quotes, unofficial duties when it comes to imparting wisdom, right, that's been gained over over your life as part of a marginalized group or an underrepresented group. How did this come into play or did this, did you feel that this came into play for you in, in each of your roles? And I would say particularly, you know, perhaps supporting the, the chief people officer and diversity officer at Twitter. Yes. And I would say that I think during that time was post um, George Floyd and um, post a lot of the things that were happening in in our world. Um, and so I, Twitter at that time was very uniquely tuned that these conversations are happening externally. And so as a company, they wanted to lean in to make sure that employees felt okay to have the space to confront them um, within the office. Because as you know, those those events were pretty heavy. And so to say you want someone to bring their authentic self to work, but yet you can't talk about maybe something that's really hurting you as an individual and especially your community um, was very difficult. And I think a lot of companies um, took the time to pause to kind of let there be space to have those kind of conversations or to just um, take a step away. Um what I did do during that time was just, I think I leaned into the fact that as much as I wanted to educate, I tried to communicate there's 
there's some things that I, I I'm not going to be able to explain wholeheartedly, but just know that this time will be a time where we'll all need to kind of like reevaluate those types of conversations and how we bring them up, if that makes sense. Did you feel like you were being asked to represent, um, you know, to represent an, an, a, a group or, or that, you know, and, and to kind of speak on behalf of a group? Or did you yeah. feel like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like, get, was there sort of an, yeah, like, was mm-hmm. there an unofficial expectation of you to sort of be the spokesperson for the black community in any way during things like this? Like, did you ever feel yeah. that sort of, that that came with the territory? I, Especially I, because you were supporting the person that you were supporting, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, mm-hmm. if anything, I almost feel like it's double layered because there's your identity as an individual. And then there's also the persona that you play as the person who supports the, the chief diversity officer. So it's sort of a, a very layered experience for you. Yes. And I'm, I'm curious if that was kind of amplified in your time and in your interactions at Twitter. Yeah, I will say that that is something that each person who is at any type of a marginalized community, it's a weight you carry no matter what state you walk into. And I say that in the fact of like, it doesn't, even though I reported into the chief diversity officer, and yes, it would make sense that I would have um, maybe insight or that I would be a spokesperson, but I think that that was something that I've, because I'm a, a Black woman, that that's something that I always carry and I've always had to be the spokesperson. I think during this time, what it did do is open others' eyes into not putting people of color or any marginalized community in that space, especially during times of what is a very heavy experience. And so that was the conversation that we were mostly having at the time was that now let's recognize that we've probably put people in a situation where they've had to be the spokesperson. Was that right? And that was, you know, a big time when I don't if you've heard like a lot of allyship conversation came up. Um, And I think that was one thing that sparked and was um, one of those things that we pushed more forward, especially during that time. And as you've seen, I've seen now even is that let's now have an allyship conversation where if there's times where I'm putting a marginalized community in a space where I'm making them be the spokesperson are be the the single um you know quote unquote uh voice for a community maybe i need to look at that and how can i redirect my good intent because i feel like a lot of people may have um a good intent in wanting to get to know but it also puts the other individual in a space where they feel like they're the only and i'm going to be the spokesperson for a full community when there's different um experiences, there's different walks of life. You never know two Black people have the same experience. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And so, yeah, I think for sure. I I definitely, so in the instance, yes, I think they did try to do that. But I think 
for Twitter especially and then other companies I think now are really pushing back to make sure that we not pushing back but um, are creating spaces to to have more of an allyship conversation on how to um, create spaces that that aren't like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in, in hindsight you know thinking as you look and reflect retroactively on on how you and also how Twitter navigated that time. Are, are you <clears throat> are you overall content or satisfied with how those conversations unfolded, or are there things that you think going forward you would you would do or advise differently? I mean, that was obviously like one of the most contentious times um, in in our society and in our in our culture and um, and and. Of course, again, magnified through the looking glass of you working at Twitter, who's, who's I mean, that the, their whole their whole existence and reason for being is to create this platform for, you know, discussion, debate, um, for people to voice and and you know share opinions about pop popular culture and sentiment. So I feel like it's a really, it's almost like a hyper experience that you must have gone through going through that and then also just the nature of Twitter's business and what they do. So are, overall, like, are you, are you satisfied with, with how those events were kind of um, handled or explored mm-hmm. um, during yeah. your time there? I actually, I would say yes. I'm, I think the team at the time did a, as much as you could do, right? Yeah, we were not together. We had to run a lot of things via Zoom or, um, you know, uh, virtually. And in doing so, you also kind of have to have people be willing to sign up to have a conversation or to invite external speakers. And that's really what they leaned into. I think what was great that Twitter didn't do is that they did not um, try to cultivate these conversations on their own. They brought in experts. They had those, they had the conversations with those who were doing the work out in the community, which was great versus it being, um, you know, somebody putting something together in a back room with only working for, so that it got us, specific outcome. Um, They also even held spaces where it was just to listen because there's no, there's, there's no, um, how should you say there's no bandaid, there's no, everything's going to be okay during a time when there's so much outside turmoil and all people want to do is be able to voice their concerns as humans and note that you voicing that concern doesn't mean that there's any type of backlash or that you're going to be looked at weird because you're having a moment that's really affecting you internally. Um, And so that was, I think they did um, a really good job during that time as much as they could. Since you're not going to be in in shared spaces and we all know human touches, um, you can't replace that, but still be, but being able to have a space to be open and honest, um, really meant a lot to a lot of the employees as well as myself during those times. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think, and we touched on this a little bit earlier when you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you shared the example of, of the event that you created um, for the employee that was wheelchair bound, but how do you think kind of generally speaking, DE&I can best be 
implemented and promoted by those working in support roles to be able to really maximize its efficacy. Yeah. Um, so I, a couple of things. Like I, one, for me, I always made it a big understanding and an understanding between myself, my executive and myself. There are certain things that I particularly want to be a part of. Um, so we would have that conversation. Um, in the early days at Facebook, I was also supporting um, the VP of engineering. Um, and he was not a person of color, but he, as working in engineering, I started to pay attention of what were the faces that I was seeing in the room. Um, and so I brought up to him, you know, after a few years that I've noticed, you know, like we are not hiring a very diverse slate of, you know, individuals. And so he agreed with me actually, which I thought was amazing. Um, and took the time to, I basically took the time to figure out what places, what speaking engagements internally could we have him at to kind of, uh, you know, just like broaden the horizon of like what engineers, um, that he could possibly speak with and maybe mentor or just have a conversation with. And that's kind of how he got into more of like a diverse candidate slate and being able to mentor um, black and brown um, engineers and, and help bring them along um, to other levels. And so I think EAs have a really unique opportunity, one, to be transparent with what they're interested in and then also ask the question of like where do you see you want your team to go where do you feel like the diversity um i don't know um diversity like downfalls are um are happening yeah and and where are the diversity opportunities at the same time right yeah what are are the opportunities and like you know what do you want to like pay close attention to and make sure you make space for it you know bring it up when you see something happening that's happening internally um for you know women in tech and say oh are you mentioned to me last week that you really wanted to get closer to um women in tech and technology, here's this event that they're running. Would you want to speak at it? You know, like things like that, that help um, bring your executive along. And can you can also be an advocate for some of the things that are happening in the DEI space. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I, I think that, that that holds for really every facet of your role as an assistant is it's to hold up the looking glass and to say, are you aware of this? This is what I see. Do you see this too? Are you interested in seeing this? Um, to point out the blind spots, to point out what you're seeing. And that, again, that holds for everything. It's not just in the space of diversity and, and diversity goals, but it's it's in absolutely everything. It's in, you know, monitoring their <clears throat> their engagement with people, their their connection with people, how they're being received. I mean, all of those things. And I do think that that the work of an assistant it's it's is often to identify the blind spots that that we see that they may not. And that's a perfect example of of how you can do that really effectively and powerfully and and measurably, right? For that yeah. entire organization. Yeah. yeah. 
100%. I mean, I think there's a lot of conversations that I've had, not just, like you said, not just in DEI, but just holding up the looking glass of how would you like your organization to run? These are the, and you're kind of that, you are that person who's really close to that executive's uh, direct staff, but then also the rest of the organization. They see you as like the gatekeeper or the person who um, has the answers on like, this mannerism he he or she did today, what does that mean? Were they into it? Were they not into it? Like you're kind of the, you're the executive whisperer per se. Um, and so in that aspect, there's things that you see or, or that employees feel comfortable talking to you about that you have to be um, willing and to, to bring to your executive. Um, I did have a, my chief design officer. He was definitely that way where he knew that I was getting information that was like outside of what he would see every day. And so he really leaned on me sometimes in our one-on-ones and he's like, what's the pulse? What's the pulse of the team (laughs) is what he would say. Um, And that was the way that we kind of like kept each other in the know of like how everyone's doing. And then also like how he could possibly um, come off or um, do certain things in a different way that can help land a little bit better with with the internal team. Totally. I mean, it's like you you know you're looking at a more enlightened executive or company when, for instance, like if we're reviewing a job spec and they talk about things like that, they talk about saying, you know, help to gauge you know, team members, alignment, things like that, like that, that's, you know, that's an executive that gets it and sees that that's a really meaningful feedback channel, the relationship with the EA and, um, and the executive in that regard. And I, I also think it's a, it's a really important reminder because I, I definitely hear a lot of assistants say, well, I want to have more impact. I want to f- be able to feel like, um, you know, like I, my 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 voice or or my contributions are reverberated throughout the organization. I don't just want to put meetings on the calendar and things like that. I mean, I think what you're illustrating is is like a, a really significant example of how you can have and achieve those kinds of reverberations and and shockwaves for an entire organization. You know, you may not be the one per se that is whatever, handing out the offer letter to that candidate. But you know that behind the scenes, you were the one that told your executive, and I'm not really seeing, you know, (laughs) a diverse community being represented here. Here's some things we can do about that. And that 100% creates, um, creates reverberations. I, I, I kind of, it reminds me, I remember one time I, I interviewed a candidate who, you know, supported like a chief medical officer or chief scientist or something like that. And she said something along the lines of, you know, well, I'm not the one that's, you know, doing, curing the cancer or whatever. And I said, well, that's true. You're not. But look at the things that you are doing. And it's like everything, everything has, what is it? They call that like the butterfly effect. Yes. Right. And I, the butterfly effect. Yeah. And I think that's a really important reminder that it's not, there's not only one way to drive impact and to really be able to recognize your your influence and your power and 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 find the the opportunities to 
to exhibit that, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, what I also would say is that um, in terms of impact, there's lots of ways, especially within the executive assistant community, that helps make that impact. And that's really global across the whole organization. I, for one, like to pay attention to how the the culture thinks of executive assistants um, and how they try to um, career develop or um, give trajectory to those um, in executive assistant roles, um, mainly because there's ways to collaborate with your own peers as well that help to make shockwaves on how a whole function basically operates. And everybody benefits from that. Um, it's not just your your quote unquote team, but it's the teams out out in different pieces of the organization all benefit when there is um, an EA culture that's super collaborative, that's really um, engaged, understands how to work um, seamlessly with each other in terms of getting things either done for a large scale things or even just like minute details that make everyone move faster and more efficiently to get things on the calendar. So I, I always say like, actually executive assistants really are like the backbone of of a company um because without them a lot of things just wouldn't move as as efficiently that's for sure that is 100% yes so we talked about this a little bit you know just how you you worked at twitter during some very interesting times. I mean, it was kind of like dog years in a way because it was just, <laughs> it was a lot of intensive, intense and intensive situations that um, that hit the fan. So, you know, you, you happened to work there, as you already mentioned, during um, the George Floyd incident. You joined three years after <clears throat> the 2016 presidential election. And then about three years after that, Twitter was, of course, acquired by Elon Musk, which the entire world knows about. So both both of those events and and if we add in, you know, George George Floyd's event as well. I mean, I think all of these events had a really profound impact on popular culture in terms of how we communicate publicly and in the public space. Um also, you know, in, in social media and the social media space, um, particularly through the lenses of, of race and gender. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you have um, any thoughts or perspective on how these events reverberated internally and how they kind of, you know, um, were felt and experienced internally as an employee. Yeah. Um, what I for the the former in terms of how it reverberated in terms of like George Floyd and the pandemic and um, things that were happening in the Asian community, um, the way that that impacted employees was really, um, and I think everyone was a bit more in a way that we wanted to also be able to have the conversations that everyone was having on our platform. Um, and so that is why there was a, a big push in being able to have external speakers, have, um, we would call them open forums, um, to just let teams and internal employees be able to have the conversations that um, that were happening externally on our platform. Um, 
as well as in terms of like the presidential election, I, I think, you know, our teams really, we paid more close attention to those high pressure times um, when we were really in the spotlight, um, especially with um, the more recent election um, that we wanted to pay attention to having like mental space. I think we paid um, in terms of wellness, like being able to pull off and dial back. So there was an internal push for rest days um, during that time to have like a time during the 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 week where once a month um, that wasn't, you know, a holiday that you could like get things done. I think that also really helped during the pandemic because everyone was just like, everything was at home, right? We were like, you know, going to work and then all of a sudden switching to like do homework for the kids and then, you know, (laughs) going to make dinner. And it was all like in the same space and nothing had its separation that I think a lot of people needed that, that wellness or mental check-in to just kind of like, let me take a day to where I can actually get things done for myself versus being everything all the time in the same location and not going outside or not standing up. Um, and then when it um, came to the change with the acquisition, I will say that that was probably the more sadder moments um, at Twitter. Um, and the main of the reason why is that um, it's really difficult to go through change and especially a change that was, you know, once a public company, now a private company and a single person um, is making the decisions that um, it it lends itself to a more restrictive reality. Um, Whereas like Twitter had come from a very inclusive, everyone, very open, transparent communication to where it it now has to move to a place where it can't be as open, it can't be as transparent. And that was a really hard time. Um, And so those events uh, reverberated in a way where a lot of people just had to like sit down and have the conversation with self is that, are they along for the journey? Um, And that's what ends up happening during times of change is kind of like, as you're starting to see things um, become more restrictive or become a little bit more um, enterprise focused as they may need to be, does that jive with who you are as a person? And I think that that was um, just an interesting time to see that, that shift internally and like how people and how we had to navigate through that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Following Twitter, you started a role at Samsara where you support the CEO. Can you just briefly touch on what Samsara does? Yeah. Um, so basically, Samsara is like the technical operations of things around the world. So logistically, we um, work on the sensors and dash cams that you may see in trucking and logistics fleets um, across the globe to help things get to where they need to be. So like, you know, if you've ever thought about how that carton of milk gets from the store to your home, um, or even to the factory to the store to your home, that is what we serve. <laughs> so it's a very different type of technology. Um, 
super sustainable um, in the fact of like, yes, it's hardware, but it's also um, data cloud storage and trying to make a lot of the um, operations of the day to day very simple for those who are in those those industries. Mm-hmm. Great. And you are supporting a CEO for the first time in your career, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. So that's a that's a big that's a big transition and a big change for you. So do you feel like any of the experiences that that you've shared with us in this conversation today, you know, particularly in supporting human resources, supporting really the the people org, um, which you you had such a um, significant uh, contribution to at Twitter. Um, and even going back to your design days, like, do you feel like these experiences have informed your approach to this work and in particular to supporting a CEO? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I will say like everything that I've gone through has definitely geared up to this point. Um, especially in the way of, I kind of need to be in the know of all the different pieces that are happening um, and uh, be very forward thinking. I think the one thing that this role is pushing me to do is like literally make plans a a year in advance. Um, So I right now have already planned out his calendar for 2024 and what trips they're taking, where where we're going on the road and things like that. because a CEO has a very um, limited amount of time and you want to make sure that you're thinking holistically about where they need to strategically spend their time and actually how much percentage of that time is being utilized for things of building up the company versus doing some external engagements versus um, talking with board members and talking with investors. And so um, it's much more into like the actual run the business of what it is to, you know, run an actual public company. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so, there's so many learnings in, in what you just described. And I think that as you point out so well, it's the macro versus the micro. Not that supporting us another C level is micro, because I understand it's not. But I think that the purview of the CEO is just different. It's just it is unilateral across the board. It's everything. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's just completely yeah. different. And I think it's totally different. Um, and I, I that's the the piece that that I'm learning, and I'm you know, getting um, more familiar with is that, you know, you're just thinking on much more of a larger scale um, than just like your own individual team. It all kind of flows together. But what's cool about this is that um, where we're thinking of, you know, what road mapping planning looks like and things like that, we're we're planning for a whole fiscal year of like 2025. We're thinking three years in advance, which is actually really different um, in in this realm of enterprise technology versus it being, you know, in from what I've seen in tech and at both Twitter and Facebook, I don't think they were thinking three years out 
you know, the, the conversation was kind of like, what's the next six months look like? <laughs> or what does the next year look like that at the most? Um, Three-year trajectory, not so much. Um, they may have changed that now, but as of when I was working there, it wasn't that far out. Um, and so we're like already in 2025. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it just, it sounds like such a disciplined organization and such a disciplined and logical you know, logically run. Yeah. So, very, yeah. Very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, amazing. So I have a final question for you, Candice. And that is, if you could support anyone in the world throughout the course of history and time, what, who would you choose to support and why? You know, this question was really hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because there's um, so many, um, to me, I think there's a, a few people that come to mind that I feel like would be um, really great to, to support. But in, throughout history and time, I'm going to go with Oprah. <laughs> um, I, in terms of just who she is as a person, how she looks at life and then also her philanthropy and like the way that she gives back. Um, I would just want to be a fly on the wall to just understand how um, she does it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I think that um, there's probably some cool things that we could do together. Um, and being able to, she's just touched so many different people across, um, I think, the globe. And especially her outreach in, in Africa and like um, all of that. It's just been amazing to watch. And to me, just um, what do you call it uh, aspirational. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She has certainly come a long way in her life mm -hmm. um, and, and, and accomplished an incredible amount. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a great answer. We'll, we'll accept that answer. <laughs> and the nice thing about that is she's still in life and still very active. So you just never know, Candice. You just never know. Sometimes when people say things like, you know, people that have long since gone, it's like, well, that's not happening. But, um, <laughs> but she is very much still present. So I mean, I could, I could, I could pick someone who, who's no longer living, but I honestly, I, that's the one that kind of sticks sticks with me is just even my mantra of like how I want to go about life um, yeah. And, yeah. and touch people, you know, yeah. it's, it's not well, always about work, right? You've also got no, to do something to like reach out to others. It's also about legacy and it's yeah. also about the kind of trails that you want to blaze and, you know, your, your legacy and how you want to be remembered. And I think that she certainly has a, has a legacy. Candice, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really, really great, not only a great discussion of your experiences, you know, navigating diversity, navigating um, all of the different interesting directions that your career has taken you, but I think also just a really good reminder of all of the, the ways that the EA career can generate impact. And um, I think that was a really really important reminder of just the incredible reach and expanse that this role can can exhibit. So I'm that's what I'm taking away from this conversation. Yeah. So thank you. 
Thank you so much. I I love that you said reach of this role (laughs) because it does definitely have um, an extensive reach. And I just want to thank you so much for the time, Jessica. I, as I mentioned when I started earlier, like Maven has really been, I don't know if I've gotten any of my roles completely through you, but I've definitely um, have learned a lot about being an executive assistant while working with Maven um, and different things. And so I just applaud um, your continuous effort to build such a connection um, for the community and to host things like this. I think it's great to have conversation with other executive assistants or those who are in the administrative and HR space and learn, um, be able to take a little tidbits and then also be Mm -hmm. able to um, just build your community. I think it's, you can do so much more when you are with others who are working towards a similar goal as you and can, um, you can lean on, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly how this gets done is it's by bringing in people who are doing interesting things, who have interesting perspectives, and who are willing to share their their knowledge. So thank you for for contributing to that canon of voices, as you mentioned, and and of knowledge. So okay. Thank you. Thanks so much. REACH is brought to you by Maven Recruiting Group, who specializes in placing executive assistants and support staff to the Bay Area's most prominent executives and companies. If you've enjoyed being part of our podcast community and are interested in becoming part of our candidate community, we're currently hiring for roles in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and Los Angeles. You can visit us at www.mavenrec.com to see some of the roles we're currently working on and to submit your resume.